0: Welcome to the World War One History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. MacArthur in World War I, Winter, 1917-1918 It was a winter of gloom for the Allies in 1917. The British had lost over 400,000 men in their failed offensive at Bacendalia in the summer and fall. That was followed by nearly half of French army units experiencing mutinies after the failed Nivelle offensives. Order was only restored at the end of an executioner's rifle. The Italians then suffered devastating defeat at Caporetto in October. In November alone, German U-boats sank nearly 8 million tons of Allied shipping. Then Russia pulled out of the war. On 2 December, a 28-day armistice was signed with Germany, ending the conflict on the Eastern Front. To add to the gloom, Europe was about to see the worst winter it had seen in many years. The only glimmer of hope was the slow, steady arrival of American boys, and it was amidst this atmosphere that the Rainbow Division arrived in France. The ports of Saint-Nazaire, Brest, and Louvre were the first visions of France the Rainbow Men had, It was a land most had only heard of or read about in books. To the men, the French people seemed as eager to know the young Americans as they were to know them. Brigadier General Charles P. Summerall, commander of the 67th Field Artillery Brigade, however, thought differently. He found that everyone he met looked at Americans as though they were only going to prolong the war. The French people were weary of war. What the Rainbow Men noticed most was the absence of men, only women, children, and the old. After three years of slaughter, the war had taken all the French men, all the European men. Douglas MacArthur was seeing France for the first time, too. He had been to Central America, toured the Pacific and Asia, but had never been to Europe. He consumed European history with his voracious appetite for books, especially the campaigns of Napoleon. He was no doubt struck by the historical significance of who he was, where he was, and what he was doing. As a young man at West Point, MacArthur excelled in Spanish and French. He could speak the language passably. The troubles MacArthur faced upon his arrival in France, however, were not in the nature of communication with the French. The Rainbow was arriving in large numbers throughout November-December 1917. As the 4th Division to arrive in France, unlike their predecessors, they were coming in up to strength and well-stocked with supplies. Under MacArthur's direction at Camp Mills, the Rainbow staff had accumulated enough supplies to keep the division in the field for six months. All of it had come to France with the division. Allied Expeditionary Force, AEF Headquarters, viewed the 42nd with a jaundiced eye. The 1st Division was now in the trenches with the British Army, having arrived in June and completed its training. The 2nd and 26th Divisions came to France incomplete and short of equipment, yet they were already in training. Shortly after the first contingent of Rainbow soldiers arrived at Saint-Lazare, Colonel Fox Connor, General Pershing's G-3 operations chief, circulated a study recommending the 42nd become a replacement division and all its supplies seized and apportioned to the other divisions. It was taken for granted at AEF headquarters that was going to happen. The 42nd was to be broken up. That was the theory, at least. But headquarters had not yet come to grips with Douglas MacArthur and his commander, Major General William Mann. The word's replacement division spread through the 42nd's officer corps, but the men knew little of these politics. After debarkation and a short stay at temporary camps near the harbors, everyone had a place to be and was sent there. The field artillery, all three regiments, which arrived at Saint-Nazaire in early November, was sent with General Somerol to couet Kidan, the artillery school located in the Breton Peninsula. Pershing had 20 training schools being set up in France, and the infantry regiments of the Rainbow went to the Vaucouleurs area, the 5th training area of the Haute-Marne district, east of Paris and southwest of Toul, within proximity to the sound and sight of the guns at the front. All the men came to be on intimate terms with the overburdened railway service in France. The Ohio and New York regiments came ashore in Brist in mid-November. The first few trains carried the men toward Vaucouleurs, in passenger cars where the men were crammed eight to a compartment with all their gear they had to stand the whole way the rest had to take the famous forty by eights drafty and cold where you hung your rear outside the car to do your business when the alabama and iowa regiments and new york's first battalion came into louvain in late november and early december they too were in for the same experience it was a two-day train trip at miserably slow speeds in the cold winter with only a few stops to Other units of the Rainbow found themselves in their own training areas of France. The 117th Engineers came into Saint-Nazaire with the field artillery. Once ashore, they were separated into battalions, companies, and platoons, and scattered to build everything imaginable. They constructed barracks, latrines, hospitals, and set up the training areas. Rifle ranges, grenade pits, trenches for training, they all had to be built. The men of the 117th Trench Mortar Battery also came into Saint-Nazaire and soon found themselves on railroad cars. But they were sent to Langres and the Fort de la Bonnelle, where the mortar school was located. It was the first time the Marylanders had seen the French weapon it was their job to use in battle. The 117th ammunition and sanitary trains arrived without their animals. The ammunition train men went to Couet-Guidon to await their horses and mules. The sanitary train's hospital units scattered to set up and staff hospitals that were immediately busy with the sick and some wounded from the front. All the while they underwent training for all elements of medical practice in the trenches. France was peculiar to most all of the men, and the bullets they had in the early weeks of their training were miserable affairs. To facilitate getting the artillerymen into camp and commencing their training, Summerall asked the French to move the German prisoners that were occupying a number of the barracks at Coquidon. The French did so, but the barracks were rich with lice, the infamous cootie of World War I. The artillerymen turned over the soil in the barracks and scrubbed them raw, but to no avail. The 149th, 150th, and 151st field artillery became infested. The infantry regiments were occupying the haylofts and barns of farmers in the villages of the Vaucouleurs area. The farmers of each area usually all lived in a village, with houses arranged along one street with a massive manure pile in front of each one. Most of the houses were divided in half, where the people lived on one side and the livestock the other. The men were billeted wherever space was available, and it wasn't long before they too were infested with lice. It was a cold winter, and training outside began in the rain, transitioned to sleet, and eventually became snow. With so many of the French men gone, many soldiers were very lucky to find French locals that would take them in by their fires. Memoirs of the Rainbow Men attest to the huge heart the French had for the Rainbow Men. The men of the Rainbows suffered through the winter, sharing blankets and trying to stay warm. Many of them were still in elements of the summer gear issued at Camp Mills. The trench mortar battery men at Fort de la Bonnelle, however, knew nothing of that life. They had hot water and heated rooms. As all the men of the 42nd began their training, few of them knew that they had almost become a replacement for a unit in the 1st, 2nd, or 26th Division. Major General Mann, commander of the Rainbow, and his chief of staff, Colonel MacArthur, found out about the plans to dismantle their division soon after arrival in France. Mann had been sickly since Camp Mills, but the Rainbow was his division, and if Chaumont wanted a fight, they had it. He pressed his case with AEF headquarters to reconsider this action, arguing the division was a symbol of American unity. Mann was not a man to be taken lightly. Well acquainted with Washington bureaucracy, he had many political friends and immediately began trying to contact all of them. MacArthur, too, had a strategy to thwart the plans of Chaumont. First, he looked up an old friend from his first duty in Manila in 1904, Brigadier General James Harbert. Harbert just happened to be General Pershing's chief of staff. MacArthur invited him to visit the Rainbow and then make his assessment of what to do with the division. Harbert agreed. Then, an American reporter in France, Herbert Corley, began covering the story of the breakup of the Rainbow. MacArthur was his source. Finally, Colonel MacArthur sent his former boss, Secretary of War Newton Baker, a telegram. Pershing intends to chop up Rainbow Division for replacements. Stop. Means ruin of crack division trained to work as a team and destroy morale of troops proud of being Rainbow men. Stop. Urge prompt action to save the division sponsored by President Wilson. It didn't take long before AEF headquarters dropped the whole affair. Pershing and Chaumont agreed to let Harvard go visit the division and make a report, but Corley's newspaper article was censored and not released. Whether or not Chaumont knew about MacArthur's telegram to Baker, it was understood that many influential people in Washington were against the breakup of the division. After Harvard's visit to a few of the Rainbow camps, he submitted his report to the AEF staff on 25 November. He felt that despite the 42nd's poor training and deficiencies, the higher echelons of its command had many friends in Washington. Because of its special nature, the disbandment of the 42nd would cause unnecessary political difficulties for Chaumont. The 41st Division, which was the next division to arrive in France, would be the Replacement Division. The 42nd wasn't broken up by Chaumont, but AEF headquarters raided the division for all it could get out of them. 31 officers in the division, men MacArthur had handpicked for duty, were taken and sent to other units. As well, most of the supplies the Rainbow Staff had painstakingly amassed before departure for France were seized for use in other divisions. MacArthur said that machine guns, tin hats, shoes, rolling kitchens, food, and munitions were all taken. When the 166th Ohio Infantry Regiment got to Morlancourt in the Vaucouleur area, they knew supplies were being seized. The headquarters of the 166 was in the château of Morlancourt. There was an open-air square in the middle of the château, and the staff planned to hide all the supplies there. AEF headquarters, however, seized everything before it could be hidden. The seizure of officers and supplies was exasperating to the Rainbow Division, but an even greater change was coming. On December fifteenth, 1917, Major General William A. Mann was relieved of command. General John J. Pershing was building an army of men that were in top physical shape, and that went for his general officers, too. Mann was deemed too old and infirm for the rigors of trench warfare. Most all the Rainbow took it pretty hard. Mann was their commander and highly admired, no matter what shape he was in. Mann's fight to maintain the integrity of the Rainbow was his last, and he had succeeded. Pershing's replacement for Mann was not a disappointment. He chose his 1886 classmate from West Point, Major General Charles T. Menahar, An artilleryman, Menaher was even-tempered, humble, and a motivator of men. He and his new chief of staff, Douglas MacArthur, understood each other immediately. They both admired each other's capacity for work and overall good nature. The Rainbow was Menaher's division now, and he would jealously protect his men and officers as if they had been his own all along. Though MacArthur felt his relationship with Meneher was on stable ground from the beginning, he did not feel the same way about his relationship with the Chaumont staff. MacArthur definitely made himself stand out to many on the staff, not only with his supplying of information to the reporter Corley, but fighting against the breakup of the rainbow overall. As MacArthur stated later in life, his actions were not in strict accord with normal procedure, and it created resentment against me among certain members of Pershing's staff. Many authors claimed this was the first signs of MacArthur's paranoia, which he would demonstrate in relation to his peers for the rest of his career. Whether the resentment was imagined or not, MacArthur believed it. Six days after relieving man of his command, Chaumont took the Rainbow's artillery chief, Brigadier General Charles P. Summerall. The artilleryman was headed for divisional and eventual corps command in the AEF. The artillery officers voiced regret over his leaving, and many of them thought that one of the National Guard commanders of the 149th, 150th, or 151st Field Artillery would take over the brigade, but Pershing chose an engineer. Brigadier General Charles H. McKinstry. The Guard officer saw it as a preferential slight. McKinstry was a West Point graduate. It didn't matter that he'd always been an engineer. With Menahir now in firm command, the business of getting ready for war began in earnest. At the artillery school, the 149th and 151st Field Artillery received their French seventy five millimeter pieces, the wonder weapon of the French army. The 150th, too, acquired their weapons, but they had the heavier French 155 millimeter howitzer. The men trained on their field guns, and the officers went to school, always having some sort of field problem to work out. At Coquidon, the 117th ammunition train finally got its horses and mules. They were not the animals that left from Newport News, but were French and Spanish animals of a lesser quality. All the bridles and harness gear that had been accumulated at Camp Mills was never seen again. The men had to wrestle with the French harnesses they received instead. At Vaucouleurs in the Meuse river valley the infantry was training through the rain, sleet and snow. Pershing wanted an army of maneuver and put a preference on marksmanship and rifle training. French instructors however knew the men had to know the way of the trenches because that was where they were going so all facets of trench warfare became standard. The officers went to school at Grand and new officers that had already undergone their training in France were added to the regiments. The 167th Alabama received 30 new lieutenants soon after their arrival in Vaucouleurs. Of the 27 new officers that were added to the 168th Iowa, six survived the war unscathed. The men were dispersed in villages all over Vaucouleurs. The 165th New York was situated around Nave Amblua. The 166th Ohio was at Morlancourt. The 167th was at Aruf. The 168th, last regiment to arrive in France, however, had been in straight to the La Fouche area at Rimaucourt, about 20 miles northeast of Chaumont. While all the men underwent basic training on the rifle ranges, the grenade pits, and the model trenches, they also went to school like the officers. The machine gunners, mortar men, signal corpsmen, medical corps, pioneers, etc. All had a special job to learn, so each had special training. The Iowa regiment, however, hit an obstacle in its training when scarlet fever rifled through their billets. Rimaultcourt was put on quarantine. The esprit de corps of the Rainbow Division, the essential quality that makes a military unit singular and whole, was forged by the series of marches that took place at the height of winter before and after Christmas, nineteen seventeen. The march of twelve to fourteen December covered thirty-five kilometres between the Vaucouleurs and La Fouche training areas but was just a preamble for the one that followed. Two days after Christmas, a four-day, 75-kilometer hike was undertaken between the Fouche and roland areas. The second march transpired during a blizzard with the temperatures well below zero. On 12 December, the majority of the men in the Vaucouleurs area were underway for the Fouche area. It was a two-day hike making cold, blustery weather over frozen roads. It was the first major hike for all the men since leaving Camp Mills. It was an ordeal for many of the men, and at the end of the journey, the 166th Ohio was reprimanded for its bad march discipline. But they weren't alone, and many units would have the same type of review after the second march. The Lafouche area was more billets and haylofts and barns. The 167th Alabama was reunited with its 2nd Battalion that had gone to saint in Lafouche rather than Vaucouleur upon its arrival in France. As one Alabama veteran remembered it, it was more corned beef, hardtack, and lice. The 165th established itself in Grande and resumed the training suspended by the march. Also awaiting the men were the four ambulance companies of the sanitary train. They had just arrived in Lafouche by train from Louave, where they had landed just two days before. There was only 10 days of training, and then Christmas was spent, in most cases, entertaining the young children of the areas the men were billeted in. Two days later, the division was on the move again. The day after Christmas, all units got their marching orders. The 168th was still under quarantine, and they would not make the march. Vehicles and animals were in short supply. The ambulance companies only got their mules the day before the march, and they were unshod. It would be hard enough for the men in their poor footwear, But unshot animals on icy roads was a recipe for disaster. It would take all the men of the Rainbow to haul, push, and pull the wagons and mules through the hills of the Vosges Mountains they had to pass through, and many ended up in the ditch. At an Ohio Rainbow reunion after the war, General Pershing proclaimed he ordered the marches to toughen up the division. If so, it succeeded. It hardened the men physically and brought them together as a team with one major common hardship they had all suffered. They had taken the best nature could throw at them. It was left to see what the Germans could do. Staff officers of AEF headquarters observed and kept abreast of the details of the march, and a good report was not forthcoming. Lieutenant Colonel William Hughes, MacArthur's childhood friend and 42nd Staff Officer, agreed with Chaumont. Preparations for the march by the various units had not been thorough, despite orders from headquarters days in advance of the march. As during the first march, discipline was a problem in the main area of concern. It didn't matter that the march was in a blizzard without the proper winter gear. A victorious army had to face any and all obstacles and maintain order, and many officers would pay for the failure to prepare their men. Colonel John Hines, the 165th New York commander, would pay for his inability to prepare his regiment for the march. A board of inquiry looked into the performance of the 165th and found his ability to adequately prepare his regiment lacking. MacArthur testified to the board that as Chief of Staff, he had forwarded details of the march to all unit commanders days in advance. Even if Hines knew the deficiencies in equipment, he had never reported it. Hines was sent to the services of supply, and Colonel John Barker was brought in as the new commander of the 165th. At Roulampont, preparations for combat were accelerated under the tutelage of the officers of the 32nd French Infantry Regiment. The 42nd officers would still have control of administration and discipline in the division, but the French ran all the training. MacArthur made sure that everyone in the command understood that the French were there to help, and great benefit could be gained from following their lead. He issued a general order to all unit commanders. Though it is to be borne in mind that our methods are to be distinctly our own, it would be manifestly unwise not to be guided by their long practical and recent experience in actual trench warfare. It is ironic that the Frenchmen and officers, veterans of the filth of the trenches, found that that was the most prevalent problem of the rainbow. They were filthy, covered with lice, and few had any soap to even wash themselves. One of the first things Barker did when he took over the 165th was to bring in a medical inspector to look over his men. The sorry state of the men was confirmed, and hygiene of the division became a major priority. All the men had their heads shaved to try and stem the lice problem. Instruction in hygiene and foot care became mandatory. Unlike Vaucouleurs and Lafouche. the men were now in barracks the engineers had been constructing since their arrival. They were no more than wooden shacks, but they did have wood stoves in them. MacArthur still referred to them as miserable affairs, but as Albert Ettinger of the 165th said, When we entered those barracks, it felt like heaven. Soon the men began to get all their new equipment. Hotchkiss machine guns and Shosha automatic rifles arrived for the units that would be using them. The Hotchkiss was a great weapon, but the Shosha, or the Shosho as the Americans called it, had its problems. One of the first light automatic rifles to ever be made, the parts were substandard. The barrel overheated in excessive use, and it was prone to jamming. All the guns the U.S. used were re-bored to fire American ammunition. Eventually, the weapon would be replaced by the Browning automatic rifle. It was the new uniforms and personal equipment that excited the men the most. The majority were still in uniforms issued at Camp Mills. Everyone replaced their campaign hat with a helmet, the recognizable pie plate style known as the Carnegie Stetson, the Iron Derby, and the Tin Millinery. New gas masks, new shoes, puttees, and most importantly, new uniforms were all distributed. It caused a problem with the Irishmen of the 165th New York. They were issued British uniforms with British buttons made in the country all Irishmen hated. It caused a near riot with the New Yorkers, who almost burned all of the new uniforms before Father John Duffy got them quieted down. The quartermaster service came up with a remedy. All the British Army buttons were removed from the uniforms and replaced with American eagles. As the French taught the men, all the officers continued their schooling. Many of the junior officers who would lead the men in the fight trained with the men others went to the school at Grand Corps. Pershing even had all the ranking officers, regimental and brigade commanders, go to school at Langres. A special interest was taken in making sure the Signal Corps commander of the Rainbow, Colonel Ruby Garrett, was well-schooled in his job. Communications were the key to control, and he was sent to the British and French armies to observe and create a system suitable for the 42nd Division. In late January, the 168th Iowa, finally off quarantine, made their own 54-kilometer march from the Lafouche area at Rimoucourt to Rolempan, and with the exception of the artillery and the trench mortar battalion, the division was concentrated in the same area for the first time since Camp Mills. They arrived just about the time the two battalions of the 32nd French Infantry showed up to finish the Rainbow's training. Within a few weeks, they would be in the trenches of the Lumville baccarat sector of the line. Along with the 1st, 2nd, and 26th Divisions, the Rainbow became part of the 1st Corps of the AEF, which had been established on January sixteenth, 1918, under the command of Lieutenant General Hunter Laguette. Pershing was pushing for an all-American position in the line, and his four premier divisions were to lead the way. Before they could operate as the 1st Corps, however, they all had to have their baptism of fire in the line with their French teachers. There was no more question of when the 42nd would go in the line. They were going, and Douglas MacArthur and the 42nd Division staff worked nonstop to prepare. As MacArthur's adjutant, Major Walter Wolfe, described, MacArthur toils endlessly over field plans, makes notes on cards, but by the time they have discussions, he has everything all worked out. He is meticulous in organization and consummate in planning. Finally, in mid-February, the order came, Proceed to the Trenches. The rainbow had spent five months preparing for this moment, and it was here at last. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.